Hello guys, a warm welcome on a very cold and unbelievably wet and stormy day as I record this anyway, to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. The premier North Wales based One Idiot and His Mic true crime show that looks for to recount for your ears some of the usually more of unfamiliar, often long forgotten dark and obscure tales from the UK and Ireland. That idiot's myself, Paul, the creator, voice and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, which it's as fantastic as it always is having you join me here today for an episode that I hope finds every single one of you good and well as you're listening in. Now many thanks to all who've gotten in touch concerning the fifth series opening double parter that we've just heard, the body on Corstorfin Hill, Corstorfin, apparently for the bloody pronunciation police out there, The feedback about the episodes has been very good and I gather that the case of James Dunleavy and his horrendous crime was found to be an interesting one. Although I do have to admit I've had several listeners get on to me about how it pronounced the title of the episode, Corstuffin Hill. Hope that's right. I hope it is. What can I say guys? I'm not from bloody Scotland so I say it as I thought it sounds. Apologies to any people whose day it ruined and felt strongly enough to get in touch with me about it. No, I'm just joshing there, honestly. I do appreciate you bringing things like that to my attention. I'm not going to go back and bloody change it or anything, but fair play, people like yourselves are the reason things like Nazi Germany were crushed. I'd like to remind as well that I'm constantly open to anyone who's got a case in mind that they fancy researching and writing up for a listener episode to get in touch. You know the type of cases that we look for on the show by now. Whatever you fancy along these lines... Please get in touch if you want to and suggest something. I've already got the first one for this series that will be coming up shortly and I've got to say it's a fascinating yet it's a shocking case. It's a well-researched great fit for a show episode and one I'd considered myself before I was pipped to it by the author. It's coming soon that one. Big thanks as well to the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show this week. I'm shouting out there Carolyn Dunney, Linda Davidson, Christy Westerhide, Ashley Edwards, Emerald Riordan, Simon Heald, Lorraine Byrne, Kay McKellar, Gabe Pigs on the Wing, fantastic name there, Catherine Carlisle and Kaylee. Now apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's names there at all. Thank you so much for your very kind support there guys, it, I can't tell you how much it's appreciated. Now there has been stuff sent out to some of you, but I hope that you've all had chance to start making your way through the back catalogue of bonus episodes that are available to Patreon subscribers to the show. Bonus episode number 26 will be out in just a couple of days, when I've actually finished writing the bloody thing, which I have finished writing it by now. I said that as I wrote this and recorded it two different times, but it's finished, it's almost ready to go. To be like these guys, it's easier than coming to the conclusion that the masked singer is shit. I watched five minutes of it a couple of weeks ago and I felt like I was in a clockwork orange and I wanted to be dead. I really, really did. So as easy as concluding that that's a load of old bollocks, just head over to the Patreon site and look for the show's title there or you can use the ever-present link within the episode show notes each week. A short time later, you can be hearing the tales behind The Enigma of Enfield Lodge or Angel from Hell or The Samaritan and the Salvationist, just to name a couple of the bonus episodes that are available to you. Now on the subject of stuff, by the way, 
In the episode show notes now is an available clickable link where there is some merchandise available from the show. T-shirts, mugs and tote bags, that kind of thing. And if you do stay tuned to the show's Facebook page and the group, there'll be details of other things because I have got some more stuff coming and soon to be available, including like sticker postcard combinations, pens, that kind of thing. Details will be up there shortly if they aren't already there, depending on when I've managed to record this. So, to this episode then of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Now, a couple of series ago here on the show, I covered what I call the Carstairs Trilogy. It's still in the back catalogue if it's one that you've not heard yet. And during the episodes there, I gave a more in-depth overview of the state hospital's history and its function. So, rather than recap that verbatim, I'll only just shortly recap it here. Based in the county of South Lanarkshire in Scotland, the State Hospital, or Carstairs as it's also commonly known due to its proximity to the neighbouring village of the same name, is one of the four such high-security hospitals in the UK that cater for individuals with mental disorders that incorporate dangerous, violent and criminal propensities, with Carstairs being the high-security hospital covering Scotland and Northern Ireland providing the treatment and care in high security conditions for patients from these areas who can't receive care in a less secure environment due to how dangerous or violent they are. It's a sole male patient environment today and employs around 650 nursing and administrative staff with housing for high secure beds for 140 patients requiring maximum secure care, 12 specifically for patients having learning disabilities and an additional four for emergency use. The average age of patients at the state hospital is reported as being 42 years old, and although the majority of these have a primary diagnosis of schizophrenia, many have multiple diagnoses such as learning disabilities, bipolar or affective disorders, and depression. Patients are admitted to the state hospital by law due to their dangerous violence and criminal behaviour, but not all will have been convicted of an offence, although any without formal conviction will have been admitted due to seriously aggressive behaviours that they've displayed, including physical or sexual aggression and violence. Now the first two parts of the Carstairs trilogy from the third series of the show covered a case I entitled The Scottish Chain of Ten, which is a truly remarkable case. It's one of my favourites that I've covered here on the show to date and one to listen to to see exactly what I mean by that. Whereas the final part of the trilogy focused upon the tales of just a couple of past Carstairs patients and the crimes that put them there. I said back then that we'd revisit the state hospital in future on the show, so that's what I've decided to do once again with this episode. I've chosen here to recount the tales of a couple of past patients from that Carstairs has housed, two accounts ranging from the early 1960s right through to the late 1990s, and the crimes that put the individuals concerned in the state hospital. It goes without saying that the episode this week does contain details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst listening as always guys. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as we look at some of the past patients of Carstairs. 
Now, there have been many cases in criminal history of the kidnapping and abducting of youngsters, and often the motivation is a financial one. A child is snatched, the victim's parents are either contacted by letter or telephone, a ransom is demanded, arranged, handed over, and the snatched child is handed back. There are a number of accounts of this in real life. Well, a number few and far between, because never ever goes as smooth as that, does it? But loads and loads on television, isn't there? Think of the countless films and TV shows you've seen where that happens. The film with Mel Gibson for what's called Ransom, isn't it? There are a number of accounts of this in real life, but more often than not, this goes very, very tragically wrong. Think, for example, of the Lindbergh baby, or Patty Hearst, or closer to home for myself personally, the infamous and tragic cases of Muriel Mackay, or of Leslie Whittle, who was abducted, trussed up, and left unable to move, and ultimately abandoned to die a terrifying lonely death in a drainage shaft. Leslie's kidnapper, the Black Panther, Donald Nielsen's crimes, are documented enough that I'm sure they don't need recounting, really. But perhaps at a future date, it's a celebrated case, that one, that I may look at for an episode of the show. Your thoughts are welcomed. If you want to get in touch with me and think about that, let me know what you think. Is Is that a good idea? Should we do it, or what? But more commonly, abduction will have a sexual motive behind it, and that's the focus of the first account of this episode. Abduction with a sexual motive is chilling and horror enough, isn't it? But what about when it has even more sinister purposes behind it? Like, for example, what if it's because you believe, you truly believe, that the devil tells you to do it? For many years, one man in the Scottish city of Glasgow had felt the devil trying to take control of his mind, and he later claimed that for years... His good nature inside had tried desperately to fight against it. This struggle between good and evil, if you like, was ultimately to claim the life of a happy schoolboy named Frederick Douglas McElvogue Dowden, who died for the simple reason that he innocently trusted his killer. It could very well have easily been two lives that were lost, and would almost certainly have gone on to be others had he not been stopped when he was. On the afternoon of Thursday 19th of July 1962, Philip Christopher Martin, a 14-year-old apprentice slater who worked in Greenock, was walking along a Clydebank road when a black saloon car slowed and pulled alongside him. The driver's window wound down, and the driver, who was a stranger to the boy, a chubby individual with receding hair that revealed a scar on his face, he looks, sounds and looks wonderful, doesn't he, asked Philip, Hiya! Do you fancy earning yourself ten shillings? Now, being a stranger or not, young Philip was pretty skint as it wasn't payday until the following day, and ten shillings was ten shillings. It's less than a tenner that today I looked up. So his curiosity was piqued. He asked the stranger what the job was and was told, Oh, I've got a shift to fireplace and I need somebody to help me lift it. It'll only take a few minutes and it's ten bob in your hand when the job's done then I'll take you home. In what were perhaps more trusting times, Philip agreed, opened the passenger door of the vehicle and climbed in. It was a decision that he was to regret for the rest of his days. As the stranger drove off, Philip asked where they were heading to and was told, oh, it's just up the road, we'll be there in no time at all. 
And sure enough, as the two chatted amiably enough during the journey, only a short time later the car pulled up outside what seemed to be a disused shop in Stobcross Street in Glasgow's Finiston area. Producing a key from his pocket, the driver unlocked the door and ushering Philip inside, closed the door behind them. The first thing that struck Philip was how particularly dark it was inside the premises. So the stranger lit a candle, and when his eyes accustomed to the gloom, Philip saw the grate of a fireplace before him. Asking the stranger, who was by this time stood behind him where they were moving it to, as he turned to face the man, all thoughts of labour and an easy ten shillings went right out of the window, because Philip now noticed that the darkness was aided by the fact that the windows to the shop appeared to have been spray-painted over in black, presumably to prevent anyone from seeing inside. And he saw that the stranger was now holding a gun that was pointed right at him. Philip was to later tell police. He ordered me then to stand against a wall. I started laughing because I thought this was some sort of laugh, but then I looked properly at his face and saw that this was no joke indeed. He looked evil. He ordered me to strip, then pushed me into a chair, tied me to it, and put a length of sticky tape across my mouth. I was terrified. As you would be like bloody hellfire. Proper arse ago, wouldn't it? Once the naked Philip was secured to the chair, the abductor, because he's jumped to that now now, hasn't he, snuffed out the candle and chillingly told his victim from the darkness, Be brave before leaving and locking the door behind him. Now you don't really want to imagine the terror that this must have been going through Philip's mind at that point, do you? I doubt that you even could. But overriding this terror, his immediate instinct was for escape and for survival. As soon as that door had been locked, Philip had begun bumping his way over to the window in the chair, desperately using his teeth trying to remove the gag that had been placed on him so he could shout or scream for help. But of course, I imagine you can't do something like that in silence, try and free yourself when you're tied to a chair, and Philip's abductor had heard these struggles. The man duly came back into the darkened premises, replaced the gag much more securely this time, and left for a second time. Now this didn't deter Philip, who was by now almost out of his mind with fear, and once again, he eventually managed to remove his gag and set off crashing his way over to the blackened window, where fortunately this time, his cries were heard by a group of children who were playing outside. They came over to investigate and immediately went to raise the alarm. Within moments, a crowd of people were outside the shop where they forced the door and rescued the terrified boy. Among the crowd of onlookers watching this furor unfold, albeit only for a fleeting moment, was Philip's abductor. He was returning once more to check on the status of his victim when he found the place surrounded by dozens of people, so he fled in panic. When a shocked and shaken Philip made his way home and told his parents what had happened to him, his father immediately took him to the local police station in Dalmuir to report the abduction. Yet when Philip had presented his story to police, accompanied by his father, it became quite apparent to both that the local constabulary considered this to be nothing more than japes, 
or a far-fetched cock-and-bollocks story invented by a mischievous youth with an overactive imagination. But of course, they were duty-bound to check, and they began to take the story seriously when they arrived at the empty shop and found evidence that suggested Philip was indeed telling the truth. Sure enough, there was the empty fireplace, there were ropes, and a wooden chair lay on its side. Lengths of sticky tape still lay on the floor, and the windows of the shop had indeed been spray-painted black from the inside, just as Philip had described. There was still even an empty aerosol can of black spray paint lying in the debris on the floor of the squalid premises. Inquiries with leasing agents acting for the premises owners revealed that the shop had been leased by a Mr Green, who had short-term let the property paying cash in advance to do so. However, the home address that he had given turned out to be false when it was checked by police. But the description of Mr Green given by the shop agents did turn out to be remarkably similar to the description given by Philip Martin of his abductor. And although detectives did manage to find a number of fingerprints in the shop on various items including the chair and the strands of sticky tape, they could only eliminate Philip's own. None of the remaining fingerprints found matched any that were held in police records. Philip did help a police sketch artist draw up an impression of his attacker, and when satisfied it was as good a likeness as he could recall, it was shown as part of a television appeal for anyone who may know the man's identity to come forward. Reportedly as well, I found out while researching, on the night that the appeal was shown, because there were no days of Sky Plus there, or repeats, it was a one-time live thing, the witnesses who'd already been interviewed and provided descriptions were taken to a show specifically laid on by police to avoid accusation that they'd been influenced by the impression shown on the TV show. Now, I don't quite really understand the logic of that if they'd already done beforehand, but there you go. Who doesn't like a free show, eh? Concerning the abductor's car, Philip had no idea of the vehicle's registration number and couldn't be sure whether it was an Austin model or a Ford but he could describe it as being black, which was as helpful as it sounds really, because way back then, almost every car on Britain's roads was a black one. But after constantly studying photographs of the interior and exteriors of different vehicle models of the two makes, Philip was able to refine the car down to a Ford Anglia model that had been manufactured during the years of the Second World War which was a sum total of 80,000 vehicles, 10,000 of which were registered to owners in Scotland. Now police had a dilemma here, as it was the only line of inquiry, every single owner of one of these vehicles would have to be traced and interviewed, which would have been a massive task, and they weighed up the cost of such an exercise upon manpower and budget, against what although had been a frightening ordeal for Philip, had not physically harmed him in any way. In other words, it didn't justify the investigative costs of such an undertaking. But that isn't to say that the incident wasn't taken seriously, because it was. But there was a difference of opinions between detectives, whereas some believed that this was either a joke that had got out of hand, or was a one-off abduction attempt that the perpetrator's close call had frightened him so much into not daring to repeat his actions. 
Others believed that he would indeed try again. He was committed and it was in his nature. But with the only line of inquiry being the car, which as we've said, would seem as difficult as trying to get up out of a chair without saying right first. That's pretty hard to do, isn't it? As the days following the incident became weeks, the inquiry gradually became overtaken by other more serious matters where personnel were needed. Crime doesn't wait around, does it? And the man who abducted Philip Martin didn't wait around either. For just 19 days after taking Philip, he struck again, fatally. In the late afternoon of Tuesday the 7th of August, a 15-year-old boy named Frederick Douglas McElvogue Dowden vanished from his Heathcote Place home in the Drum Chapel area of Glasgow. The boy's father, an engineer also named Frederick, was especially concerned that something sinister had happened to his son and he'd not just run away from home. Frederick's mother Mary had died some months previously and like his father, Frederick Jr. had taken his mother's passing especially hard, so much so that it had made father and son that much closer. He was therefore certain that his son wouldn't have run away from home, and after speaking to Mr. McElvogue Dowden, police soon became convinced of the same. Although a large-scale search for the boy was launched, in which they checked his usual haunts, spoke to his school friends, checked hospitals in case he'd been admitted as injured, and made searches upon open scrubland, in waterways, and even in the River Clyde, no sign of Frederick was found. The only hint of what had happened to him, the only clue that police had to go on, was that some neighbours of the boy told police during the house-to-house inquiries that on the afternoon Frederick had gone missing, they'd seen him getting into a black car. Possibly a car that was a Ford Anglia model. Now, if you were a copper, your spidey sense would be working overtime a bit there, wouldn't it? You'd like to think anyway, wouldn't you? The search for Frederick McElvogue Dowden continued over the ensuing weeks, until by early October, the search was in the process of being scaled down. Personnel were needed elsewhere. But it wasn't completely stopped, and it was drummed into all uniformed officers on the beat across the areas that had been searched and the boys' haunts to make those extra checks and speak to witnesses again. Perhaps something had been remembered, perhaps something else would jog their memory. It was with this firmly in mind that a sharp-eyed officer walking his beat around the West Bridge End area of Glasgow's Dumbarton district, taking an extra close look at disused premises in the area, noticed that for some strange reason, someone had covered the windows of number 66 West Bridge End, a disused doctor's surgery and now almost derelict property, with black paint. It's a strange thing to have done at the best of times, but the officer reasoned that it had been done with the express purpose of keeping nosy people out. His curiosity aroused as to what was going on inside. Standing on a window ledge, the officer drew himself up to a slight gap in the paint to be able to see inside. He was immediately back down, nauseated. Going immediately to the nearest telephone box to call his station, The officer then forced the door to the two-room property and covering his mouth and nose, taking a closer look at what had disturbed him so. Tied securely to the legs of a sink in one of the rooms, an overturned wooden chair next to him 
and with his mouth and nose fastened tightly with adhesive tape, was the badly decomposed body of Frederick McElvoke Dowden. Nearby to his pathetic remains lay an empty black paint aerosol. As the search for the missing Frederick now became a murder inquiry, led by Detective Chief Superintendent Tom Goodall, of note who was the officer that arrested serial killer Peter Manuel four years before, Frederick's body was taken to the police morgue, where an examining pathologist ascertained that due to the advanced state of decomposition, Frederick had died not long after being abducted and would not have suffered for long. There were no signs of Frederick having been beaten or tortured, nor any signs of any sexual assault to him. He'd been left trussed up and gagged, most likely like Philip Martin had, only Frederick had suffocated. Now there doesn't seem to be anything merciful, or he wouldn't have suffered for long, that's a horrific way to die, and the suffering at the end of his moments is unbelievable, isn't it? The terror of the poor lad's final minutes must have been off the scale, I don't even want to think about it, you can't even begin to imagine that, that's horrendous. Once again, a surge of the crime scene produced several sets of fingerprints. Once Fredericks had been eliminated, the ones that were left were once again none that were recorded in police files. But they matched exactly the fingerprints that had been lifted from the scene of Philip Martin's abduction back in July. Once again, when letting agents who oversaw the lease of the former surgery were asked to check their records for who had rented the premises, they described a plump man, with receding hair that revealed a scar, who had again paid up front in cash, and who called himself Mr Black. This man had now struck twice, once fatally, and police were desperate to get to him before he made it three times. Letting agents all over the central Scotland area were contacted and visited, and were shown the artist's impression Philip Martin had helped create, to see if anyone matching that description had attempted to or had successfully rented a premises from them. And almost immediately, police discovered that at the beginning of October, around the time Frederick had disappeared, cash had been paid for the short-term use of an empty shop in Plantation Street in the Glasgow area of Govan, this time by a Mr Blue. Keeping a discreet watch on this property, Detectives surrounded the shop and went inside when it became apparent that there was no one there. Inside they found a chair and several lengths of rope, a roll of adhesive tape and a black paint aerosol can. There was no evidence to suggest that anyone had been held or assaulted there, but an examination of the scene discovered the telltale fingerprints that confirmed what police already by that time knew from the killer's calling cards. They matched those of Mr Black and Mr Green. Although discreet surveillance was placed upon the shop, the elusive Mr Blue never returned to it. So, police knew now that the killer of Frederick McElvogue Dowden had almost a network of these abandoned, derelict properties to hand for his dark urges across the city. He had an established routine, and was obviously planning more abductions. 
With a new and desperate urgency, a criminal psychologist was now called in and given access to the murder file containing all police knew about the man for what was to be an early use of offender profiling. The answer the psychologist provided was, He will be over 30, not married and still be living at home with a single parent who is most likely to be his mother. Now how exactly this was arrived at at the time wasn't reported, you could probably hazard a guess about that now from what you know, and this information could of course only be ascertained for accuracy once a suspect was identified. But bearing it in mind, detectives now went back to what they believed was the strongest, best chance of finding their killer, tracing the black car. Yes, as we've said it would be a massive task, but a necessary one, there was a madman loose, and he's got to be stopped now. Sounds a bit of a dirty Harry ref, that did, I just thought. Fantastic, best movie ever. Oh, magical. Attempting to trace the car was a line of inquiry that had never quite completely stopped, of course, but it had dwindled down to being in the hands of just a handful of officers. By the time Frederick's body was found, had managed to get this figure down to around 1,500 potential owners. Eventually, the commanding officers of neighbouring police forces agreed to transfer personnel in to assist with this list. The list of remaining potentials was then divided up amongst beat officers, with each being given some 15 to 20 names and addresses of black car owners within their beats to visit as part of the inquiry. Name by name was ruled off the list as owners who were spoken to provided truthful, unquestionable alibis until two officers, PCs Cameron Wiseman and Angus MacLeod, knocked on the door of a house in the Darmanuk area of Glasgow to ask the owners of the black Ford Anglia that was parked in the driveway their movements on the 19th of July and the 7th of August. The couple who lived there told the officers that they'd been holidaying in North America over that time frame, an alibi which they could prove through the passport stamps that they'd gained from their trip but they did impart to the officers that they'd issued the use of their car whilst they were away to a friend of theirs, a 35-year-old Glasgow mechanic named Philip Givens. You'll probably know him. He looks after a lot of police cars, said the couple. All very innocuous so far, except when they were asked to describe Givens, and they told the officer that Givens was on the fat side, he had thinning hair and a small scar on his face. Heading immediately round to Givens' home, which he shared with his married sister Margaret and her husband, Givens wasn't there, he was in work at the time. So the officers headed immediately around to Givens' employers, and upon arrival there, one look at the mechanic was enough for the incident room to be contacted and told that their search was now over. It was like the artist's impression had come alive. Givens was duly arrested on the spot and when his fingerprints were taken back at police headquarters were found to be a perfect match for those recovered of Mr Black, Mr Green and Mr Blue and it was then that it could be shown just how close to the money the early offender profile had been. Givens was indeed over 30, he was unmarried and rather than a single parent though he lived with his older sibling. At an identification parade He was picked out immediately by each of the letting agents who'd had dealings with him using one of his colour-coded identities. 
and was also immediately picked out of the lineup by Philip Martin. At interview, Givens at first denied responsibility for either crime, but when faced with the evidence, soon became a wreck of a man, crying and begging for help, and spluttering that he'd never meant to hurt anyone. He hadn't wanted Frederick to die, he just wanted the sexual thrill from the act of tying him up, gagging him, and then abandoning him. He claimed that when he'd returned to the surgery to let Frederick go, once this weird kink had worn off, he'd found the boy dead, asphyxiated in his own fear to free himself. Givens had subsequently panicked and fled, and when asked why he hadn't telephoned police to tell them where Frederick was anonymously, which would have ended his family's suffering and anguish, it was then that Givens gave the astonishing but gravely serious reply that he was told what to do by the voices in his head, and they'd said nothing about informing police. It was the devil that directed these voices, he claimed, and informing police wasn't what he wanted. Yeah, seriously. Awaiting trial in Glasgow's Barlini prison, Givens' only concern was for the welfare of his pet dog, Bruce, which he implored his sister Margaret to take care of. She was to later claim, I'm glad he was found out, for I know he would have gone on killing and hurting little boys until he was caught. He just couldn't stop. I know he was mad. He said he'd heard the voice of the devil ordering him to do the things he did, and he said he was frightened of what would happen when he died and came before God. Philip Givens came to trial at the High Court in Glasgow on Monday the 4th of March 1963, where he faced charges of the assault of Philip Christopher Martin, in which he threatened him at gunpoint, stripped him and tied him to a chair, and the assault and culpable homicide of Frederick McElvogue Dowden, binding him with bootlaces and adhesive tape to the legs of a sink in the disused surgery, locking him in and ultimately causing his death. Givens readily admitted both offences. Consultant psychiatrist Dr George Sweeney told the court that through sessions he'd spent with Givens pre-trial, Givens had admitted that he got peculiar sexual thrills out of tying himself up and then freeing himself, and had decided to experiment with this pathological sexual development of his to see if he got a similar, if not a greater thrill, from doing it to adolescent boys. Dr Sweeney said, He's had no girlfriends at all, he has no interest in women, and is basically rather a timid person. He is an abnormal personality, a psychopathic personality with an illness almost amounting to insanity, although I do not think he's insane. Givens thinks of his abnormality in religious terms. He sees it as a conflict between his good self inside him and the devil. Yeah, he sounds fine, doesn't he? Instead of a date with a hangman, presiding judge Lord McIntosh told Givens, in view of the medical evidence which has been led, I hold that you are suffering from a mental illness. I further hold that you, being a person of dangerous, violent and criminal propensity, require treatment under conditions of special security. Givens was then sent to Carstairs without limit of time, asking his sister as he was led away, How can I meet my maker? How can I face God after what I did for the devil? Philip Givens was never again freed to walk the streets to be able to assault or kill young boys to satisfy 
whatever perverse and warped sexual desires he had. Spending the rest of his life in secure hospitals, a patient at the state hospital for more than two decades alone, Givens died of natural causes in 2006, aged 78. Pretty chilling, disturbing stuff, eh? The second and final person that we shall meet in this return to Carstairs is also now dead, albeit a lot more recently than Philip Givens. And whereas the former of this episode, although a very clearly disturbed and warped individual, managed to mask his condition and operate under the radar until he was caught, with our final tale this episode, there seemed to be no end of pointers beforehand suggesting that the person in question was a deeply disturbed, dangerous individual. He'd come to the attention of police and medical professionals several times before for petty crimes and violence, as well as being both a psychiatric outpatient and an in-one, his last stay being just some weeks before the monstrous crime that would send him to the state hospital. For the final account of the episode, we head back to 1997, once again to the High Court in Glasgow, to hear the tale unfold. So on Monday the 17th of November 1997, a trial that was to last three days began at the High Court in Glasgow, a hearing that came about as the result of a rare legal move, because on that first day, the accused was found to be insane and unfit to plead or go on trial, but the presiding judge, Lord Kaplan, ordered that the evidence in the case still go ahead to allow an examination of facts to determine whether the accused had committed the crimes he was charged with and his mental state at the time. Stood in the dock was 34-year-old Brian Fernie, a father of four and resident of the North Ayrshire town of Irvine, who was accused of a number of gravely serious charges, including charges of assaulting his ex-wife and six other different women on various occasions over an 11-year period, attempting to attack a police officer with a knife, several counts of assault and attempted murder by strangulation against his former lover, 17-year-old Angela Thompson, and on June 24th of that year, which had been Fanny's 34th birthday, Angela's horrific, almost unbelievably brutal murder. Although already ruled insane and unfit to plead, committed to the state hospital, Fernie did, however, appear in the dock to hear the three days of evidence, as directed by Lord Kaplan. But that Monday, Fernie was taken from where he'd been awaiting trial, in Majesty's Prison Barlinny, in the northeast Glasgow suburb of Ridry, to the state hospital, where Lord Kaplan had sent him without limit of time. During three days of evidence, the court heard how on the afternoon of June 24th of that year, as we've said, Fernie's 34th birthday, he'd savagely attacked Angela in the back garden of his home in Irvine's Giga Lane. He had struck her countless times across the head with a baseball bat, bludgeoning her to death, then covering her with a large board. He'd used a selection of broken bottles, broken glass and knives to savagely mutilate her about the body and head. Horror enough, yeah? Fernie had saved the worst atrocity for last, though. He had then used the length of tubular metal from a whirligig rotary dryer in the garden to decapitate Angela, spending 15 minutes hacking away at her disfigured head doing so. Once he'd done so, 
he carried the head some distance away, placed it underneath some empty refuse sacks. And the reason for such carnage? He believed Angela was an eyeless alien who had metamorphosed no less than four times that day in front of his very eyes. The court heard testimony from Angela's sister, 19-year-old Catherine Thompson, as to how Angela's relationship with a much older Fernie had begun just over a year before, in October 1996. It was a relationship that Angela was warned against entering into from the very beginning by several of her family and friends, as Fernie had an unsavoury reputation in the Irving area for being, I quote, a weirdo, who'd been violent and abusive towards his previous partners, as well as it being common knowledge of his past struggles with mental illness. Angela, or Angie as she was more commonly known, was a caring but headstrong teenager though, and ignored this advice completely, believing that everyone had good in them, and where other people had failed, she would be the one who could bring this out in Brian Fernie. She was thus swept off her feet by the charming older man, and at first their relationship was so good that Angela soon began spending more time at Fernie's Gigalane house than she did at her own home that she shared with her sister Catherine and her parents Helen and Derek in Irving's Mull Place. But cracks soon began to appear. Like his past relationships, in what was a common trait with him, Fernie began to become violent and possessive towards Angela. At Fernie's influence, Angela also began drinking quite heavily and using a variety of drugs. Where it had initially been hearts and flowers between the two, by just February 1997, four months after they'd started seeing each other, the relationship had deteriorated to the point where Angela's family noticed a dramatic change in her. Her sister Catherine told the court, She'd become very smelly and shabby looking, and I gave her the same advice as I had constantly been given her, to leave him. The first time I saw him, I knew he was a worm. She also told that she'd seen bruising clearly apparent on her sister several times, and that on one occasion, Angela had revealed to her sister that Fernie had imprisoned her in his home for three days straight. Catherine claimed that she decided to go with her mother to the police to report Fanny for abuse on several occasions, but for reasons that weren't revealed, this was something that they'd never gone through with. But on the afternoon of June 24th of that year, a neighbour of the Thompsons knocked on their door to report that they'd moments before been walking past Fanny's house, which is only a few streets away, and had heard Angela screaming. Catherine told the court how she and her mother then immediately raced around a few streets to Fernie's house, claiming, I thought he'd been hitting her again. I was determined to get her to come home with me. One minute I was battering on his door, the next I heard my mum screaming. Fernie had gone much further than hitting Angela. What Helen and Catherine discovered in the back garden really was the stuff of nightmares. So sickening was it that when details of the attack and Angela's injuries were read out to a silenced courtroom, Helen and Derek Thompson had to flee the court, too distressing for them were the details. By the time Catherine and her mother had arrived at Fernie's house that day, police had already arrested Fernie following a telephone call from neighbours of his, two boys who had witnessed the attack on Angela from their upstairs bedroom window. 
Police had arrived at the scene to find a deranged, stripped-to-the-waist, blood-drenched Fernie in the road outside his house with a knife, which he'd then attempted to injure PC Alan Lord with. He'd been disarmed, overpowered and detained by PC Lord, whilst PC Mark Sawyer made his way around to the back of the house, urgently, when he heard multiple screams. Those multiple screams had come from Catherine and Helen Thompson, because they'd discovered Angela's corpse lying under a board on the back lawn. Catherine told the court, I knew right away it was her, because she was wearing my boots. My first thought was he'd knocked her unconscious. I took in her feet and her legs and worked my way up her body. Then I realised there was nothing anyone could ever do for her. That's when we began to scream. PC Sawyer found Angela's head some distance away from the body, underneath a number of rubbish bags. Nearby was a sharp knife and a length of heavily blood-stained metal tubing. Can you imagine the horror of that? There are no words really, are there? Examining pathologist Dr Marjorie Black told the court that it would have taken Fanny up to a full 15 minutes to decapitate the young woman with the rotary dryer, a complete act of sheer madness and overkill, as Angela had long been dead before Fanny even began to set about decapitating her with the pole, even before he began disfiguring her with broken glass. He'd already smashed her skull like an eggshell with a baseball bat and killed her, and as we said, had then mutilated what was left of her face horrifically with broken glass and the knife that was found on the lawn. The two young brothers, the neighbours of Fernie's who'd called police after witnessing the attack, told the court through video link about witnessing the murder, how they'd seen Fernie covered in blood in his back garden with a woman. She was lying underneath a board on the back lawn, and they described witnessing Fernie hitting her very hard repeatedly with a baseball bat, and then with what they described as a big sharp thing. It was an attack that had, they said, left him slicked head to toe with blood. Now following his arrest, details emerged that for a considerable time building up to the murder on June 24th, Fernie had been showing increasing signs of mental disturbance, and had made comments to several people that, when you hear them as I'll outlay them shortly, proved that Angela was at serious risk of harm from him. He had even twice spent time as a psychiatric inpatient in Kilmarnock's Crosshouse Hospital just weeks before the murder, but doctors there had no power to fully detain him. At the end of May, Fernie, who'd been having intermittent contact with psychiatric services for nearly five years up to that point, entered the casualty department of Crosshouse Hospital in what was reportedly a distressed and psychotic state. He was informally admitted, but absconded from here and headed into Glasgow Central Station, where he was found by police behaving, I quote, in an odd way. Taken to Glasgow's Stewart Street Police Station, he told an examining police doctor there that he was something called the Son of the Father, he was duly returned to Crosshouse to be compulsorily detained for 72 hours for psychiatric examination, during which time he appeared to settle down. Despite pleas during this period from his worried mother and his worried brother for him to be further detained, doctors only allowed him to stay on as a voluntary patient. 
just one hour after his 72-hour compulsory stay, Fernie discharged himself. It transpired that Fernie had spent another short period at the same hospital only three weeks before this episode, voluntarily admitting himself at the request again of his worried mother, who was so concerned about his disturbing behaviour, especially the fact that he was now calling neighbours into the house to ask if they could see black hands on the stair banister and begged him to get help. He was also visited by Angela during this stay, and at the same time, Fernie's ex-girlfriend and mother of his two daughters, 33-year-old Kerry Deans, who'd been asked to attend by Fernie's mother. During this visit, he asked Angela to leave the room, and when she'd gone, told Kerry that Angela was a voodoo witch filling his head with nonsense. Miss Deans later told the High Court. He talked about how she could contact evil spirits and said there was something evil in his house. He said she was into black magic and that he was going to get rid of her. Five days before Angela died, Kerry told the court that Fernie had telephoned her that morning and alleged that Angela was even trying to set up their two daughters with two paedophiles in the former Irving Magnum Leisure Centre, asking Kerry to sort her out. His last words to her were, If you don't do something about it, then I will. A friend of Angela's, Michelle Caddy, also told the court that Fernie had told her on several occasions that he thought Angela was this kind of voodoo witch who put shadows on the wall of his home, leaving him scared to go into the house because of his belief that the shadows were going to kill him and his children. Angela, she told the court, used to go along with these delusions, and to put Fernie's mind at ease, even made a show of pretending to wipe the shadows off the walls with his sleeve. Michelle said, He said he just wanted to get the shadows off the wall, and he said he would kill her if they didn't come off. And on the day that Angela died, early that morning, Fernie had visited the home of another former partner of his, 46-year-old Emily Hanna, to tell her that Angela had put a spell on him and a thing was now following him about. Mrs. Hanna told the court how she'd first seen Fernie staring at the sun for hours on end a week before Angela's death. When she'd asked him about what he was doing, she told the court, he said he had to keep staring at the sun. He said God had told him to look after the children. Emily then said that about 7.30am on the day Angela had died, Fernie had arrived at her doorstep and Irving's Barra Crescent in an agitated state. She went on, According to Brian, Angela had put a spell on him. I told him it was just a lot of nonsense, but he went on saying that he had something in him that Angela had put a spirit in him. He talked about this kind of thing for years. I suggested he go to a chapel and see a priest. Fernie rambled onto her for some time talking about religion and speaking of seeing shadows on the wall in his house and on the outside of some of the other houses. Emily explained to him that these were merely patches on the walls and tried changing the subject. She continued, I talked to him about the weather because the forecast said it was going to be raining that day. He said, no, it's not going to rain. It's going to be a lovely, bright, beautiful day today. He had a smile on his face. When asked by the advocate deputy, Mr. Scott Brady, to describe the smile, Emily said, an evil smile. 
I'd seen it on a few occasions before when he'd threatened me. When I saw that smile, I started to become frightened. Now she'd had plenty of reason to be frightened of Fernie during their relationship, as she told the court. On one occasion following a row, he stood outside her window for three hours and threatened her with a knife, and on yet another, he had threatened to drench her in acid, disfiguring her. She told the court, he said he would bury me. He sounds a proper catch, doesn't he, ladies? The court had up to that point already heard testimony from several of Fernie's past lovers about his violent nature, those that he stood accused of assaulting over an 11-year period. Both Kerry and Emily told the court of the savage violence Fernie had meted out to them during their respective relationships with him, recounting several instances of physical, verbal, even mental abuse, and how Fernie, they claimed, would punish them with headbutts, punches, kicks, even threaten them with knives and acid attacks, he'd throw whatever was to hand at them, for all manner of indiscretions that he perceived they'd committed. And it wasn't just limited to these two women, by any means. Another former lover of his, 32-year-old Esther Bell, who Fanny had a 12-year-old son by, also spoke of his violence and philandering, telling how once he'd thrown a spade at her, how he'd struck her on the head with a cup that he'd thrown another time, and once even brought a girl to their home in full view of Esther and took her up to their bedroom. Fernie's ex-wife, Wilma Stevenson, also told the court how she'd married him in November 1988, but had left him for good by January 1990, as a result of her having been beaten by him on a regular basis and falsely accused of having affairs with men at her work. Even when their daughter Chloe was born in March 1989, Fanny had accused her then of having sex with doctors in the hospital, and she also described an occasion when Fanny, who was at the time holding four-month-old baby Chloe, had headbutted her, and yet other occasions when he'd thrown things or he'd threatened her with knives, she said, I was terrified of him. Collectively, not one of these women who gave evidence were in any doubt that Fanny was completely capable of murder. He was a time bomb that was waiting to go off. Well, on June the 24th, 1997, he went off big style, didn't he? Whilst on remand awaiting trial, Fanny had insisted to his appointed solicitor, Matthew Brown, that his 17-year-old girlfriend, Angie, was, I quote, not a human being, and was there solely to cause he and his family harm. But he claimed to Mr. Brown that he had a greater power to fend off a tax buyer. Mr. Brown told the court, He had the strongly held view that Angela was there to destroy him and his family. He told me he was the son of the father, meaning God, and that was where his power came from. Mr. Brown said Fernie told him that alien activity was being carried out in houses in the Bawtree Hill scheme in Irving and that both the Ministry of Defence and the American CIA were also part of this conspiracy. Angela too was part of this conspiracy and had metamorphosed into an eyeless alien four times before his very eyes on the day that he'd killed her. However, he described Fernie as being happy and carefree whilst he was recounting all of this and he'd told the lawyer that he could never be tried for murder because he had, I quote, killed an alien and not a human being. 
So concerned was he about Fernie's mental condition that Mr. Brown said he had urged the prison governor at Barlinny to keep him away from other inmates. Bloody hell, you think? I mean, the truth is out there or what? Inmates were to be indeed kept away from Fernie, as Lord Kaplan said he was convinced that Fernie had killed Angela on June the 24th, but ruled that he would have been acquitted of murder and all assault charges because he was insane at the time of the murder. Fernie stood in the dock clutching a Bible, said nothing as he was told by Lord Kaplan he was to be detained at the state hospital without limit of time. As Fernie was led from the dock, Angela's sister Catherine screamed at him, I hope you roast in hell. Immediately following Fernie's incarceration, Catherine and other members of Angela's shattered family spoke to the Glasgow Herald newspaper. Catherine said, He is away to a hospital to get treatment now because he's sick in the head. That doesn't bring my wee sister back. She was innocent and she didn't listen when we warned her off this man. I hope he rots in hell. Angela's father Derek added, Naivety was Angie's only crime. Most grow out of it, but Angie never had that chance. I don't think she knew what he was really like. She was only 16 when she started going out with him. He didn't just take her life, he totally mutilated her body in such a terrible way. At least he won't get back out to harm anyone else. He was an obvious danger and should have been committed to a hospital long before this. Mental health services faced calls for an inquiry immediately into why indeed Fernie wasn't locked up weeks, months, even years before and the seeming complete lack of action by authorities over his mental state. Clearly already a violent, disturbed individual, as we've heard and was shown in his behaviour leading up to the murder, as well as the two spells in a psychiatric facility weeks before he killed Angela, it appeared that doctors who were dealing with him on these occasions felt that his condition may have been related to drug or alcohol use, both of which Fernie was a regular abuser of, and as such, they were not in a position to detain him for more than 72 hours, despite pleas from Fernie's family. Even Fernie's own mother had begged doctors for his son to be placed in a psychiatric ward for help. She was quoted later as saying, I begged them to help, but they ignored me. They tried to persuade him to stay, but they couldn't in the end. They should have forced him. Consultant psychiatrist Dr Charles Lind had told the High Court during Fernie's hearing that following the case, many aspects of mental health legislation would have to be revisited. Dr Lind said, If we look in general at cases involving alcohol or drug abuse leading to apparent mental instability, we are not permitted to detain any patient unless it is clear that there is an illness underlying the effects of the intoxication. Even if there is a strong case for detention, the limit is 72 hours. The consultant psychiatrist also warned that unless changes in the law concerning this were made, similar killings could happen. He later told the Herald, I and many of my colleagues are becoming increasingly concerned about the apparent incompatibility of sections of the Mental Health Scotland Act 1984 with modern attitudes to mental health. I believe we're dealing with many different cases and are living in a society which has a wholly different attitude to mental health 
than the one that existed almost 15 years ago when this legislation was framed. As well as a change in attitude, which I take to be less tolerant, there are also the effects of care in the community to be taken into account. We also have to take a close look at the difference between dangerous behaviour and mental illness, and to be more specific in how each is dealt with. Ayrshire and Aaron, Health Trust Chiefs, shared Dr Lynn's view and expressed their deepest sympathies to Angela Thompson's family. A spokeswoman added, Due to patient confidentiality, we cannot give any specific details in regard to this man, but we will be looking at every aspect of his treatments whilst he was under our care. We believe at the time our doctors acted entirely appropriately, though in the light of this tragic event, the Trust intends to conduct a comprehensive examination of procedures. Not in time to save poor Angela Thompson though, was it? Brian Fernie was held at the state hospital for more than two decades following his appalling crime, but in March 2018 he was transferred to the medium security Rowanbank Clinic in the grounds of Glasgow's Stobhill Hospital, having been reclassified as medium risk. At 7.30pm on June the 9th of that year, a fellow patient at Rowanbank, who'd also been moved there having previously also been at the state hospital, violently attacked 55-year-old Fernie in a ward at the clinic, stabbing him in the left eye with a pen. Fernie was treated at the scene for a minor injury following this attack, and although police were called as a result, no one was charged. A source at the clinic later said, Fernie had only been moved out of maximum security a few months ago after two decades at Carstairs. It's the first step to a possible move back into the community, but he's already been hit with a major setback. It was an unexpected attack on Fernie, but the hospital staff will take steps to make sure that there isn't a repeat. There was never to be a repeat, but Fernie was never to make the move back into the community either. On March the 23rd, 2019, Brian Fernie died aged 55 at Glasgow Royal Infirmary reportedly from medical complications including liver failure. Sources said that due to a combination of a lack of exercise and the side effects of the medication he was on, he had ballooned to weigh more than 20 stones before his death. Upon news of Fernie's death being made public, the father of Angela Thompson, Derek, told the Scottish Daily Record that for more than 20 years the family had feared Fernie could one day be released they'd lived with the waking nightmare of their daughter's killer one day being back on the streets. Derek was quoted in the Daily Record as saying, I'm not joyful at the fact that someone is dead, but I'm not unhappy about it either. He'll not be missed. We were always concerned that he'd one day be free to walk the streets, which would have been very wrong, very, very wrong. It gives us a little peace of mind to know that that will never happen. We were given a promise in the past that we would be told if he was ever to be released. That's not going to happen now, so it's satisfactory in that sense at least. We miss Angela very much, and she will never be forgotten. And nor should she be either, eh? Fernie, meanwhile, you've got to hope that wherever he is now, if he's anywhere, he's suffering for his monstrous crime. 
So I'm sure you'll agree that we've heard two truly disturbing accounts, each one detailing an extremely dangerous individual. And backtracking through each, let's start with Philip Givens. Mentally ill, driven by the devil, whatever, this is a calculating individual who would have gone on to kill others, whether he claimed the death of Frederick was an accident or not. If you secure someone so that they can't breathe and then you lock them up, there's always a serious risk that they're going to die, isn't there? Come on. And this wasn't one-off behaviour either, was it? Police found at least three premises Givens had hired with the intentions of using them for such practices, each with the same setup of chair, ropes, sticking plaster and spray paint in each one, as though these were canonical items needed for his dark urges. I mean, why specifically the sticking plaster, or why did it have to be black spray paint? Were these merely just for practicality, or were they chosen because they were important to the fantasy? And these were the only places that police found. Could there have been more? Givens only confessed when faced with evidence linking him to those particular scenes. Could he have gone through every colour in the bloody spectrum for a false name, hiring such places with the intention of luring boys there for whatever chilling sexual oddities that he had in mind? Had he rented premises in other towns or cities for the same purposes? Had he struck before? and the crimes were just not tied to him, not recognised. Undoubtedly, his behaviour and preparation that we've heard shows that he would have carried on doing so had he not been caught, by all accounts truly believing he was driven by the devil to commit each one. And there may have been a great number of other boys who ended up like Tragic Frederick. Brian Fairney, meanwhile, what on earth can you say really? There seemed to be serious failings and a shortfall in community care there, when still on the streets is someone who can be so violent, who chucks spades at his partners, threatens them with knives, threatens to disfigure them with acid, and beats each of them like an egg. Someone so clearly and vocally disturbed to so many people, that he tells several of them that his girlfriend is a voodoo witch, who he's going to kill to protect himself and his family because she's cursed him, or that she's an eyeless alien that he's seen change four times. Someone whose own mother and brother beg psychiatric services to commit him knowing how dangerous he is, and someone who spent two spells in psychiatric care only weeks before the murder after claiming he was some sort of godlike being, and this guy was left free to commit horrific murder. It seems a tragic crime that could well have been prevented with intervention. But the sad thing is, how do you act on such ramblings alone until an individual does something that warrants action? By which time, it's probably too late for people like Angela. Many years have passed since the crimes committed by the individuals we've heard about here, and the many laws dealing with mental health have over the years since these been codified and changes in implementations have been made. But you have to ask, are these changes enough? Think of the disturbed individuals that we've met before on the show, people such as Peter Bryan from last series' episode The Time Bomb, that's who sprung straight to my mind then. Sadly, we hear far too often of cases where disturbed individuals go on to commit horrendous crimes because they're incorrectly diagnosed or wrongly security classified, don't we? I know the human mind is an impossible one to fully map, but it does leave you frustrated and somewhat chilled, 
when you know that people like your Bryans and your Givens and your Fernies are out there and institutions such as the state hospital will never have a surplus of empty bed space. What then are your thoughts on the cases and issues raised here in the episode today? I thought a bit out loud at the end there, I know I have, but I always do, it's how we do the show. I'd love as ever hearing your thoughts concerning the cases of Givens and Fernie, which you can do now in the ever-present thread that's already up on the show's Facebook discussion group page, or through any of the show's social media links if you want to, You can even email the show if you want to get in touch. I'll always get back to everyone who does. We're as well once again at Carstairs meeting yet another couple of former patients, again the perpetrators of truly awful crimes, in this month's bonus Patreon episode of The Enthusiast, bonus number 26, which I'm right now going to shove off and put the finishing touches to, and which costs less than nicking a supermarket trolley each month for you guys to hear it and it'll be out shortly. And we shall revisit the state hospital at a future date again here on the regular show, although over the past couple of episodes, I've had a bit of a sickener of research in it. There was James Dunleavy spent time there, and I've spent so much time with my head into it the past few weeks, I feel like I should be invited to the bloody Christmas party there, so it's one for another time that's a bit much further down the line. I hope that you found the tales from there this episode both interesting and informative ones though, perhaps ones that are even a bit thought-provoking as well. By all means, please let me know, I'm all ears. I thank you guys as ever for joining me for the episode today, and all that remains is for me to say that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Take care folks and goodbye for now.